Jack Panksept was the first and only neuroscientist who focused squarely on the emotional brain. There was a lengthy and instructive series of emails between Jack and Lucy Biven, our next guest, that ultimately resulted in the publication of the famous book, The Archaeology of Mind. I'm so grateful to have this opportunity today to speak with Lucy Biven, who co-authored The Archaeology of Mind with the one and only Jack Panksepp. Those who study the field of neuroscience will know his name, and if you haven't heard of him, I hope this episode sheds some light on his work, combined with Lucy's, as pioneer researchers in the field of effective neuroscience. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, where we bridge the gap between theory and practice with strategies, tools, and ideas we can all use immediately applied to the most current brain research to heighten productivity in our schools, sports environments, and modern workplaces. I'm Andrea Samadhi and launched this podcast almost four years ago to share how important an understanding of our brain is for everyday life and results. This season, season nine, will be focused on neuroscience going back to the basics for the next few months as we've welcomed some phenomenal pioneers in the field of neuroscience at the start of this year, paving a pathway for all of us to navigate our lives with more understanding with our brain in mind. My goal with this next season that will run until the end of June is that by going back to the basics, it will help us to all strengthen our understanding of our brain and our mind to our results and provide us with a springboard to propel us forward in 2023 with this solid backbone of science. With some new and exciting responsibilities on my end, we'll be doing one episode a week, going back to the basics each week, that I know will be helpful for all of us. For today's guest, in episode number 270, we'll be speaking with someone who many of you who study in the field of neuroscience will recognize. There are those who I would call rock star researchers whose work has revolutionized the field. If you take a neuroscience course, or like I did, a neuroscience certification program, if you're a clinician, a psychotherapist, you will have come across her first book as required reading. Meta Psychology Online Review thinks this book should be essential reading, not only for mind professionals, but for teachers, parents, personal and physical trainers, and coaches. So when I had an email from this next guest, one of these rock star authors we come across and highlight in our notebooks, letting me know that she's recently published a new book and that her first book she co-authored with Jack Pangsept, I almost fell off my chair in my office. She could have been Mick Jagger emailing me, as that would be the equivalent in the field of neuroscience research. Her first book, The Archaeology of Mind, that she co-authored with Jack Pangsept, describes the new scientific discipline called effective neuroscience, which seeks to illuminate how our most powerful emotional feelings, the primal emotional effects, arise from ancient neural networks situated in brain regions below the neocortical thinking cap, or basically how our emotions show up in our brain. I've put some reviews in the show notes from some famous researchers that you might recognize, but let's learn more about our next guest, Lucy Biven, who co-authored The Archaeology of Mind with Jack Pancept. She's the former head of Department of Psychotherapy at the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, part of National Health Service from England. She became interested in neuroscience about 20 years ago when she was appointed by the Michigan Supreme Court to devise and implement a protocol for the transfer of custody of a -a two-and-a-half-year-old girl from the home of a couple that the child regarded as her parents to the home of her biological parents. Like most of her colleagues, Lucy worried about the little girl's psychological development, yet the child progressed well and today is an emotionally healthy young woman. So where did it all go right? She looked towards neuroscience for the answers that she was looking for and found that, along with meeting Jack Pansep, 
who coined the term effective neuroscience, which is the field that studies the neural mechanisms of emotions and how, again, they map out in the brain. My goal with this next interview is to learn directly from Lucy Biven how an understanding of our emotions and our brain can help us to be better teachers in the classroom, better coaches in the field of sports, or improve our effectiveness as a manager in the modern workplace. Her most recent book that we'll talk about today, A Shortcut to Understanding Effective Neuroscience, was released last summer, and I look forward to learning what this rock star from the field of psychology and neuroscience can teach us with her work, her research, and her experience. Let's welcome Lucy Biven. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you so much for reaching out to me when you did. It was perfect timing for the direction that we're going on this podcast, going back to the basics of neuroscience. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. Well, you you know how excited I am. And just to start out with, uh, I wondered what type of reaction do you typically get when you reach out to people and you say, oh, by the way, I happen to have been the one that co-authored the book with Jack Pansup, The Archaeology of Mind. Do most people know that book and who Jack Pansup is or what happens? Well, you're the first one who's responded so far. So wow. I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell you. Well, I've got all these notes about understanding the seven core emotions, and I've never done a podcast on it because I didn't have a handle of it. And so I read your book very carefully, and I hope that this interview will help me to gain the understanding so that I can definitely explain it to others and help others along the way. So I'm I'm so excited for this. Thank you okay, for being here. Let's go. <laughs> all right. Absolutely. So Um, I always like to know what brought people to where they are now. And you actually explain it in the introduction of your book, A Shortcut to Understanding Effective Neuroscience. But can you give our listeners a, a snapshot of your career path? So I don't think that I was crazy that you came from England. What were you doing over there? And how did you get appointed by the Michigan Supreme Court to that case? Well, um, I, I trained. I trained at the Anna Freud Center. Uh, it used to be called the Hampstead Clinic, and um, it, it was a training in child and adolescent psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and so I was just a an ordinary psychotherapist, child and adolescent psychotherapist. It was good training, but um, I had no interest in neuroscience. In fact, I was a bit phobic about science in general because I'd never really studied it much beyond the basics. And then I got thrown into this case. Now, I don't know how I was appointed, to be honest. There were some other psychotherapists, uh, psychoanalysts in Ann Arbor, which is where this happened, uh, who were very involved in the case. I think they were very involved in dealing with the custodial parents. And one of them just called me and asked me, would I help out in managing the transfer? And I said, sure. So that was it. I, I hadn't I had nothing to do with it prior to that phone call. And so then your book opens with that incredible case, an example of how neuroscience helped to inform the outcomes of that case with those children. Um, can you just explain what you saw that 19 experts in child development couldn't see without understanding how the brain works? Well, I see it now. I didn't see it then. Uh-huh. I was um, I was as worried as they were, frankly, uh, but I I became much less worried as I dealt with the case because it became clear to me that this little girl she she became very very fond of her uh, biological parents as she got to know them because she had a, a series of visits with them in with the in the presence of the custodial parents those were the people whom she regarded as her parents and she got to love these people. But I stayed very much in the background, but she also liked me very much just because I was a benign presence. And I remember if she had problems with a toy or something like that, she would come over and crawl onto my lap. And I I was a safe person, too. And I thought, well, in terms of trauma, I could take her home and she wouldn't be traumatized with me. 
Right. And she wasn't traumatized with them. So I, I thought to myself, well, how did this happen? We all had the opposite point of view. And I looked through the psychoanalytic literature and I found absolutely nothing that explained it. In fact, I found a number of articles which said the contrary. The only one who was the exception was Anna Freud herself. And she said that she felt that if a child was left in the company of adults whom he or she trusted, that they'd be okay and there wouldn't be a trauma. And that, in fact, was the case. A few other people agreed with her. And some people actually came up to me after the whole thing was over and said they agreed that the child would be all right. And they did this on the basis of their psychological understanding rather than their under, they, they didn't understand anything about neuroscience. Most people didn't at that time. And I certainly didn't. So, but I thought, well, what are the reasons? And I just couldn't figure it out. And so I turned to neuroscience. I was lucky. I read a a popular book on neuroscience by a wonderful writer named George Johnson. I think it was called Palaces of Memory or something sort of funny like that. And he explained things so well. For example, he explained action potential, which is actually a very complicated mechanism. And I understood it. And that sort of made me less afraid. And because neuroscience is not that difficult, the names are sort of arcane. They're hard to remember that way. But if you pro apply just a little bit of patience, you can understand anything. I mean, I could. Yeah. Yeah, if we could just go back and um, for the listeners that might not have, you know, known the story. So um, you were appointed to this case because this, uh, was she two and a half? A two and a half year old girl was to go back to her, her biological, biological and everyone was afraid that she was going to miss the, the exactly. other family. Yeah. And, and, you know, as, as a mom of two kids, you know, this, this story really hit me because when, you know, when we drop our kids off at daycare, when they're just very little, I started to think, did I make a mistake from leaving Canada where we had a year of maternity mm -hmm. leave to spend with our kids and now I'm dropping them after, I don't remember, I think we three had months. 12 weeks, three months. Three months yeah. yeah. And it felt like nothing. And suddenly I'm dropping them off and going off to work. And it's a horrible feeling. It was, it's like it's your heart's getting ripped out. And, and I was shocked to learn what you discovered that the hippocampus creates enduring personal memories, but it doesn't function until the child is about four years old. I wish Absolutely. I knew that. Is Actually, I, I, I was a little wrong about that, okay. a lot wrong about that. I found out um, a friend of mine sent me some research that uh, I hadn't read before I wrote the book. Actually, sure. the hippocampus comes online at about two years. But the reason why there aren't any memories before four years is that the prefrontal cortex, cortex which creates ideas, isn't, is, is right. still very immature. So there aren't any ideas to remember. What they find is that there are sometimes certain sort of flash memories that are that are retained. Usually, they're not spontaneously remembered. They can be remembered if there's a um, a reminder of some sort. But mm -hmm. but but in any case, I mean, certainly from a functional point of view, children don't have personal memories before the age of four years. That doesn't mean that they can't be damaged. They can be damaged in ways that they don't remember. So if you, it depends who you drop your kids off with. If you drop uh, your kids off with bad people, yeah. they might be damaged, you know, emotional sure. damage. And we see that, you know, with those uh, with uh, lots of case studies. You know, those children in Romania, the orphanage children. Now they were given perfectly okay food and, uh, you know, physical care, but they didn't have any any mother or father mm -hmm. to take care of them. They didn't have any close relationship and they didn't do well. And what can happen, one of the terrible things that can happen is that there is a upregulation of the autonomic nervous system of the, uh, on, uh, and an upregulation of the HPA system. And that can result in the sec excessive secretion of cortisol. Cortisol can suppress the immune system. And a lot of these children died of infections. So it's mm -hmm. horrible. Mm. Just because a child can't remember, don't think that you're scot-free. You still have to take care of them. 
Exactly. And that, that brings me just to think of um, the book, What Happened to You? Like, you know, when you're a teacher in the classroom and you've got these kids that, um, you know, their autonomic nervous systems going haywire, you just don't know what happened to them yeah. in their lifetime, right? I mean, they're, they're can't, for example, they did some studies with rats and, you know, subcortically, all mammals are very much the same. So this could easily be applied to all mammals, including us. But they found that when rats, let's say, were socially isolated, which is to say no maternal care, there were fewer opioid receptors in their brains. Now, opioids are the feel-good comfort chemicals. They're the ones that make you give you the warm fuzzy. And if you have fewer receptors in your brain, that means you have much less capacity to feel comforted, to feel good. And those rats, in fact, remained anxious, poorly socialized. They were, they were bad parents uh, for the rest of their lives. And so it can have a it can have a permanent effect. Well, were there any other things that you noticed like that that would have been really helpful for young parents to know what, about connecting neuroscience? to to our brain is is there any that's a pretty big one to, for us to know well to some extent i think that the neuroscience that at least that is out there that we know about conforms very well to everything that people know about good parenting which is to say even though a child doesn't remember let's say you have a, i mean that patient that i wrote about in in at the end of the book that little boy who was so phobic he barely remembered what happened to him but it had somehow sensitized his fear system now how did that work i don't know all i know is that there is research indicating that sensitization and certainly fear sensitization is a real thing and and his fear system had been so sensitized that he was afraid of lots of things, anything that, that seemed even remotely dangerous, he would develop a fixation on it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been mugged or any anybody who's listening has ever been mugged, but if something like that has happened to you, anybody will tell you that one of the worst things about it is it leaves you so jumpy and, and nervous mm -hmm. that uh, yeah. even when it's over, and even when you know you're probably never going to get mugged again, you can't, you can't calm down. It takes you a while. It's, it's interesting when you when you talk about it like that, because you know how you know yourself really well. I always freak out when people are behind me. I can't handle someone walking too closely behind me. It just makes me it freaks me out on the hiking trails. I'll move over so someone can get by. It, I don't yeah. know what that is, but there's something there. Someone. Uh, I, don't I don't know. Think, I, don't I don't think most of us like that sort of thing. I certainly don't. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, like, what what happened to me in another lifetime? Because I definitely <laughs> nothing's happened that I at least remember. But it just freaks mm -hmm. me out when someone's too close behind me. I'm like, what are you doing over there? Yeah. Well, I think anyone who invades our personal space, it's not nice. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, what was it about Jack Pansep's work that filled in those missing gaps for you? Um, for, you know, lay people like me and others listening, and, and the way you're describing this, it's putting me at such ease, because if you pick up Jack's work, it's not easy to get through. I could not say I understood it enough to teach it to someone else. So what was it that filled in the gaps for you with it? Well, I had been, um, since this case, I had been wondering about, I've been reading a lot about uh neuroscience and i i really i really got interested in it and i started in reading a reading about it sort of for its own sake rather than trying to figure out what i was you know the questions that i had rather than to answer them so i wasn't getting anywhere to be honest i read a book by joseph ledoux fascinating wonderful book called the emotional brain and i thought ah great i've got it the emotional brain it it didn't tell me anything <laughs> it told me the research, I can't tell you, is absolutely elegant. Um, and it's it's absolutely, I recommend it to anybody. But all it told me was that when you condition somebody, uh, particularly he deals with fear conditioning, the person has to already be afraid before they can be conditioned. In other words, if I gave a foot shock to a mouse, the pain always unconditionally arouses fear. 
So I've already frightened the mouse. And then I play a tone and the rat will become afraid of that tone. And what Ledoux shows is that's entirely involuntary. You have no choice about that. And and so I thought, well, that just told me the role of emotion in learning. You have to be in some sort of emotional state to be to be conditioned. And I, I was about to give up, but then in the I was living in England at the time, and in the year 2000, uh, Mark Soames, I don't know if you've heard of him, brilliant oh, guy. Oh, he's fabulous. You, you might consider having him on your podcast. He's wonderful. Okay. Anyway, he 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 is he sort of founded this neuropsychoanalysis project, and they had their first symposium in London. So I went along. And Yak was one of the keynote speakers. And I'll be honest, I didn't know what he was talking about. He showed animals in various states of sort of affective arousal. They were angry or sad or nurturing or lustful or something like that. And I thought, and I remember I I didn't know what he was talking about, but I thought, I think this is a guy. I think this is a guy I've been looking for. So I bought his book and I read it. I, I'm sure you had trouble with it. I had trouble with it. I read it three times and I outlined it one time, the last right. time. Anyway, I was having some problems with things and I I, I emailed Yak and asked him some questions and he was very kind. He answered them for me. Yeah. Anyway, I was head of this department of uh, child and adolescent psychotherapy in, in Leicester and and we had... I had the ability to ask him to come and speak. And he was coming to England in any case. So I said, well, can you come by and talk to us? And he said, okay. And he did. And anyway, he, we, we spent the, the weekend with him. And um, he told me he wanted to write a popular book. And I, and I said to him, well, you want some help with it? And he said, wow. yeah. That's and cool. So that was just... Wow. We didn't now we did not write that popular book. We wrote an update of his first book. That's that's how it turned out. But but I, I mean my my role in that book was to help Yak get his message across as best I could. That that's what I did. So that that's in, in a way I'm co-author, but that's really his book. And this book is a little bit more of an effort to clarify some of the questions. I, I didn't start it as a book. I just started outlining things because I, I I just didn't understand. I thought Yak was right. It felt like he was right, but I I didn't really have any proof. And I thought, can you get any? And I I fashioned an argument, which I think is pretty good. It's not airtight, but it's it's pretty good. It's the best I could do in any case. <laughs> well, I spent a good part of Saturday reading it, thinking, going through all the, and coming up with some questions. It really took some thought, uh, just connecting everything that I've been learning in this neuroscience certification course that I didn't understand. So, you yeah. know, you're, if we could go to your book, the first okay. three chapters, you discuss three different schools of thought about how emotions uh, about emotions and effect. So if we could just talk about each one and okay. and I, I like how you you kind of outlined it with like an, a physical example of the gunshot. So I'll just start with like the first one is feedback theory that you say effects emerge from cognitive parts of the cortex. Yeah. And so so for example, you hear a gunshot and freeze, but why are we not afraid according to this feedback theory? According to the feedback theory, which is a kind of a um, William James, you know, the great psychologist of the last century or two centuries ago, um, and and a guy named, I can't remember his first name, Lang was his last name. Anyway, they kind of figured out it, it's an update of their theory. And their theory is that when something happens, a significant stimulus happens, you have an involuntary reaction, kind of like a reflex within your body. You know, stress chemicals pour into your bloodstream, you freeze, your pupils dilate, your hair stands on end, something like that with a frightening stimulus. And what they're saying is that's not fear. You don't feel a fear, fear then. What happens is that all these responses are fed back to your cerebral cortex 
the cognitive parts of your cortex, and it puts it all together and identifies all those reactions as fear. And then and then you feel frightened. So you don't run away because you're scared. You're scared because you run away. Hmm. Okay. That Can you it? translate that into like students in the classroom or in a sports environment or in the workplace? How does this theory translate? Well, I don't think it's true. So okay, okay. I wouldn't bother. <laughs> okay, let's not. Let's not then. Let's go to the next one. And so so the next one is brainstem theory that is that's what I call it. It, that's what you call it? I just call it that just that's you know, okay. For and and I, I call him Jack. That's how the, and he might have different pronunciations, but okay, I'll, I'll call him that. You might know him a different way, but yeah. I'll, I'll get all messed up if I change it because it's hard enough. <laughs> so then so then brainstem theory is Jack's seven emotional systems. And I, I didn't even notice I've got them written out on my desk because I'm always looking at, you know, what where am I today? In, in his emotions. I didn't even notice that he used all caps. But so so he's saying that all mammals have these seven emotions. And why do you think these seven emotions were overlooked by those psychologists and neuroscientists if they appear in the upper brainstem indicating that they involve uh, they came about a long time ago? Well he got recognized for it because he pulled them all together and he discovered a few of them. For example, he discovered the play system. He and he figured out about the seeking system. He was um he he was something, you know. You, you talk about a rock star. Yak was the rock star. Wow. He was something wow. else. He he yeah. had I asked him, I asked him one time, I said, How did you think of that? Why did that come to you? He had no idea. <laughs> he, it, really? We we don't because cognitive Cognitive things are largely unconscious, and mm. he said he felt sort of ready to discover it, which means he probably already figured it out unconsciously, and then it bubbled up, and he figured it, and he knew he'd figured it out. But, I mean, that's the way we learn. We study, 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 and then you go to sleep, or you mm. have a cocktail, or you do something mm. relaxing, and then the next day, you have a good idea. Right. <laughs> the result of all that work, and then unconsciously putting it together. But, um, I mean, I think that's how it works for everybody. doesn't matter if you're smart or dumb. But I can't remember where, where oh, so, so, capital, well, capital letters. You asked about yeah. capital letters. Yeah. He put them in capital letters to show these are real parts of the brain. Mm. The, each system consists of identifiable brain structures. They're fueled by specific chemicals, and it's real. You see... Uh, other psychologists, we, we just come to these conclusions on the basis of things that people say to us and what we understand is really going on. But nobody has figured out such a broad level of such a broad taxonomy of emotions as Yak has put together. So that's him. He put it together. And the reason the reason nobody did it before is because they're not as smart as him. Right. <laughs> right. So if we think about the gunshot with with this brainstem theory, we hear a gunshot. What happens? Well, what he says is that his point is that the seven and other people agree with him, most notably Damasio. But he he says these seven emotional systems are located largely in and around the brainstem. There's projections up to the higher regions of the mind, of course, but. The, the hub of them is located in and around the brainstem, particularly a structure called the par- periaqueductal gray, which is has which has is constructed in a way that it has seven uh, columns which correspond to the seven emotional systems, and so that's probably the hub of it. But nobody is absolutely sure. And um, but he says also that affects emerge also from deep subcortical structures in and around the brainstem. Now, demonstrating that that's the case, it, it takes a little more doing. And and I I, I try to do that in the book. I, I, and actually, once I, once I saw a, a kind of clean, a clean sequence of experiments that demonstrated that in some sort of credible way, I thought to myself, oh, no, I, I've got something here. 
And that's when I, I remember I talked to my husband about it. He said, you should write a book. And he made me promise that I would. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I did. I love it. I love it. So, so if we were, because I know that you believe this one. So if we're going to think about this and we're teachers in the classroom, would it be that we want our students to be seeking and be curious with learning? How, yes. how would you say that? Absolutely. I think this is one of the big lessons I was thinking about what you said, you know, you, when you wrote to me your questions, you know, what, what's the, the big, the big thing that informs psychotherapy, you know, one of the reasons why psychotherapists and neuroscientists have uh, formed such a close uh, alliance is because neuroscience corroborates the attachment theory. Attachment theory it means that, you know, means that it's instinctive to crave a close relationship with a nurturing, protective caregiver, um, typically the mother. Mm -hmm. And it used to be thought, no, that's just because the mother provides food and care and so on and so forth. And it's basically a kind of what Freud described it as a kind of libidinal attachment. In other words, I love my mother because she makes me feel good, as opposed to I need my mother this is something inside me. And, and neuroscience corroborated that all mammals crave that. You deprive any mammal of that. And, you know, you think about the Harlow studies with the monkeys, you know, those poor little things. And, you know, this poor little unmothered monkey would prefer a, 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 a dummy monkey with a, a terry cloth uh, covering than a wire one that had milk. So in other words, it craved that co tactile comfort. Wow. So that that's the big reason why psychotherapists and, and neuroscientists have for, formed this alliance. But what psychotherapists I don't think have fully appreciated is kind of the opposite of attachment, which is the seeking system. And the seeking system, it's the kind of it's the system that makes you want to do something on your own. It makes you want to understand it yourself. You don't just want to believe somebody else. You want to understand it. You want to do it. Don't help me. Let me do it. You know, when a kid will say, no, don't help me. I want to try it. And you let them do it. And if they fail, you might give them a suggestion on how to do it better. But I think the seeking system, particularly as an impetus toward proactive behavior and cure, I think is terribly important. And and that was one of the things that I tried to emphasize. So right in front of me, I've got that uh, the desire to succeed with the seeking system, with extreme sports. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to think of how people listening could think about, well, I have this emotion and it's driving me on my own to succeed in sports, succeed in the workplace, succeed in the classroom. How do we, how do we use it? How do we, what, what's the importance of knowing it's there? Do, is there an importance or do we just oh, know yeah. we have these seven systems? Sure. Anytime you encourage somebody, anytime you tell them what they're doing wrong, that they can correct. Mm -hmm. Anytime you do anything like that, you're encouraging the seeking system. Um, you know, let's say you're a runner and, and you're, you know, you're not standing up straight enough or you're doing something wrong. And I was your coach. I'd say, try it this way. Do that. Pump your arms differently. Try that. I think it'll improve your speed. And you do it and you feel better. Now, you can say to me, thanks a lot for telling me, coach. And I'd say, you're welcome. And that's my job. But the point is, I've helped you to do it better for yourself. And, and it's hardwired into me and, to do better. And then, yeah. And then, and from then on, it's yours. Got it. Do you think we covered brainstem theory? Is there anything else that I've missed with it? Well, I can tell you what it, I could take you. I, I don't know. How are we doing on time? I don't even know. So oh we're my at maybe 20 minutes to go well, until the I end. I could, I could, I, I won't do this because it'll take too much time. Okay. But I, I describe in the book that that line of um, 
it's not a, it's not chronological, but it is conceptual. But that line of experimental research, which demonstrates why um, why it's credible to believe that affects emanate from subcortical structures. The main the main experiment was done in the middle of the last century. It was an experiment with cats. And prior to this time, everybody thought that the cerebral cortex, you know, which generates thoughts, perceptions, ideas, everything, that that was the seat of consciousness. Everybody thought that. And what these guys did, uh, Maruzzi and Magoon, these two uh, researchers, they destroyed a cat's um, cortex, but left the brainstem intact and the cats remained awake, you know. And then they did the opposite. Cats became completely comatose. Destroyed the uh, destroyed the brainstem, left the cortex intact. Cor- the, they were comatose, and then they they discovered that the reticular activating system in the brainstem that's the part that generates awakeness. Now you say awakeness isn't the same as consciousness, and then you can say they they discovered that a big part of consciousness is motivation but what is motivation motivation is sensations of of uh pleasure and pain both physical and affective probably affects arose evolved out of physical pleasure and pain because many of the structures many of the structures overlap so what's important physical pain have very overlapping structures for example so if I was to wrap this one up, it's important to know we have seven core emotions that are hardwired into our brain. And how do they help us? They help us. Well, they ha- they probably evolve because they help us to adapt. I think it's I think it's important to say that the that this uh, list is probably incomplete. Mm-hmm. Um, people have suggested there's a social dominance um, a social dominance system. They just dis- also that there's a disgust system one you'd think there would be because all animals you know for example express disgust at noxious food or something like that but i i don't that that remains to be uh discovered got it well let's move on to the third theory conceptual act theory um, that claims that emotional systems do not exist and that emotions do not emanate from any brain region um, affects depend on concepts we construct largely on the basis of social experience. Yeah. And so anyone who's read Lisa Feldman Barrett's theory of constructed emotions would attach her to this one. Is that right? That's hers. That's hers. Hers That's and hers. So with a gunshot, how would you explain your reaction if, if emotions don't exist in your brain, according to what, what, she, what she says is it works like this. When there's a stimulus, you have a, a physical reaction. A lot of times you don't even notice it. But if you do notice it, you don't know what it means. It can mean anything. She she uses the example that if you have a contracting stomach when you're in a bakery, you can you think, oh, I'm hungry. If you're out and about in flu season, you think, oh, no, I'm nauseous because maybe I have symptoms of flu. If you're in a doctor's office waiting test results, you say it's anxiety because I'm scared something bad would be wrong with me. And her, what she says is through the course of our lives, we develop concepts about affects. And we develop it because if I've seen you be, if I'm your kid and I see you get scared or if I, th- if I hear you talk about, oh, I'm really scared of this, then I understand what fear means. And then when something let's say scary happens and I have this physical reaction, I go, ah, that's fear. It's very similar to the uh, feedback theory, uh, except for the fact that feedback theory accepts about emotional systems. And and uh, actually, Yak and Lisa Feldman, Feldman Barrett were frequently at loggerheads with each other about this. Yeah. She, she hit him pretty hard. And Really? Yeah, yeah, she was, yeah, she really did. She wrote a few papers, you know, pretty much taking a full swing at him. And, well, in order to understand her argument, she gives a lot of evidence. And I go through it point by point. Mm-hmm. That, that was actually a lot of work. And yeah. I go through it point by point, And 
I just I don't think her her um, her uh, the research that she presents is sufficient or sometimes even credible to uh, make her points. So that's how I, that's how I go through that. So so would it be accurate to say that her point is that um, that in this conceptual act theory is that our emotions are invented using our memory? Would that be kind accurate? Of. Kind of, uh, right? Yeah, constructed. Constructed, That's how okay. she puts it. So you could say invented, but not invented from scratch. Invented from, in other words, if I invent something, well, I don't suppose anyone invents something from scratch, but okay. I construct it. I make it up. I figure okay. it out yeah. from from my experience. So, so from what I'm hearing, I don't think you believe this one. You believe Jack Pansub's brainstem theory that our emotions are oh yeah are, that's okay. that's why that's that's what i one of the reasons why i wrote the book is because mm -hmm. i i thought i could this argument which i say i think is pretty good it supports him that, so in in yeah. uh after i've talked about these three different uh hypotheses about the creation of affects i i give an argument in favor of his his and Damasio's, to be fair Got it. And that brings me into chapter five and six. You look at Jack Pansept and Damasio and um, explaining how effects might be created. Both are similar involving the brainstem, but they have different mechanisms. So, and, and then here's where it gets hard for me because, you know, this is where it goes into what I don't understand and what I haven't learned yet. But Damasio's view involves homeostasis and consciousness. So can you explain Damasio versus Pansep's point of view here? Yeah, well, Damasio says, um, he, he presents a, a sort of a, a, a hypothetical mechanism where he says the homeostasis of the body, and that's purely physical. A lot of people, when you talk about homeostasis, they take it as metaphorical. In other words, do I feel good or something? Homeostasis has to do with, let's say, the amount of calcium in your body, how it's working. It has to do with your temperature. It has to do with your circadian rhythms. It has to do, you know, all physical, how your body stays in, stays alive. And, and it turns out that these factors, all these homeostatic factors have to be kept in a pretty narrow margins. In other words, if my temperature went up five degrees, I'd be pretty damn sick. And so I, I don't have a lot of leeway and you don't have a lot of leeway with any of these things. And he, present, he says there's this part of the brain, which he calls the protocell, which monitors homeostasis. And the protocell in according to the mechanism, which I'm not going to go into because it's kind of kind of complicated, the protoself eventually interprets this homeostasis as a feeling state, as an affect. It can be just a physical feeling state, not pain, pleasure, something hurts me, you know, physically, something feels good physically, and it also can be interpreted as an affect. And and so this absolute tight link between homeostasis and affect is absolutely um, uh, absolutely essential to uh, Damasio. And, and he also says that all our behavior is an effort to maintain homeostasis. In other words, everything that I do, I want to feel good. I want to feel as good as I possibly can. So all my behavior is an effort. And that's where I challenge him because it's not true. Take maternal behavior. You feel maternal maternal behavior is is characterized uh, maternal, let's say, nurturing behavior, and it's not limited to mothers. I, I don't wish to give that um, impression. But nurturing behavior is characterized by the secretion of very chemicals, chemicals, oxytocin, um, particularly, but feel good chemicals. And when you're nurturing somebody, you do feel good. You, we always feel good when we're helping somebody. And sometimes you can help somebody when you're hungry or when you're thirsty or when you're uh, sad or something like that. But it'll still make you feel good, or at least it'll make you feel better. So it, so the, your behavior doesn't depend, isn't driven entirely by homeostasis. Mothers will put themselves and, let's say, 
look at look at the people who looked after us during the pandemic. Um, I was talking to a few of them a couple of weeks ago, and you know they they came in every day. They risked their lives for us, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they were proud of it. It was a source of of self esteem and and a, and of course immense gratitude. I mean, think of how you feel when you've done something good for somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, have you heard of Damasio coining the term interoception? That's the yeah. only interoception. That... Just means um, perceiving stuff that's going on inside you, and that's that's interoception. Of course, is you know, if you're monitoring your homeostasis, interoception is the way you do it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Self-awareness. So, know, yeah, know yeah. your body, know your yeah. self. Except, except affect regulation is not, and, and, or affective expression is just not that simple. It's something else. It's, it, maybe it's usually homeostatically driven, Maybe it is sometimes homeostatically driven, but not always. Now, Yak has a has a mechanism. He he presents it very briefly, and I asked him about it, and he didn't have that much to say about it, and which makes me not that impressed with it, to be honest. And but he says that affective the creation of affects takes place entirely in the brain what he's saying is you get global um synchronous firing of neurons in emotional systems and somehow this resonates with the parts of the brain which nobody knows what they are that generate affects and it and it creates some sort of resonance and and that's how it works. so it all takes place in the brain and it's independent of homeostasis and I think I don't know about the mechanism because I, I have nothing to say about that because I don't know, but mm-hmm. I, th- but he's certainly right sometimes mm-hmm. that it's independent of homeostasis. So, so all the research in the first seven chapters of your book show how um, the brain creates conscious affective feelings. Is that correct? How our brain. Well, I, I think it's a, a stretch to say I show it. My my only point was just to just to demonstrate that they they are subcortically created. That's all. Okay, so saying that in English that they exist in the brain, right? Just to yeah. go a different layer. And so um, now you mentioned like I loved the research parts, it, and I know that took it was it must have taken so long for you to put it all in. But there was Ramachandran in there, and he's come up on our podcast with this uh, Harvard researcher. Yeah, about I the heard dream that world. Oh, it was just, uh, I had a blast talking with him. Yeah, and good. He studied with Ramachandran, and so it, it's just amazing when I see all the research come in. That's why I'm getting so excited. I call you guys all rock stars because, you know, we're learning from you and trying to see how can we improve our lives better. Um, so, you know, where, where did hit Ramachandran cites that people with male bodies feel like men and people with female bodies feel like women? What was well, the whole well, point? Well, what Rama, what Rama was saying was, uh, forgive me for being so familiar with him, but um, <laughs> I never met him or anything. But um, what he says is that he says that identity is not whole, it's not holistic. It's not a whole thing. He said there's strands of identity, and one, two of the strands, for example, are your physical body and your mental state. In other words, you can think, you can look like a woman and then think you're a man, or feel like you are a man somehow, and the reverse also. And most of the time, it links up. Most now, and now there is some research actually that Yak did, although that Ramachandran doesn't uh, cite it. But there, and I, I don't. It's it's just on mice. It turns out that if um, if a pregnant um, mouse is stressed, the release of hormones can be skewed in such a way that the development of the brain and the development of the body are opposite. You can have a male brain, female body, a male male body, female brain. So I hope I got that right. <laughs> anyway, <Yeah. laughs> 
Anyway, um, and what he found, he doesn't describe it very well, but he found that the offspring of some of these um, some of these mothers were showed bisexual homosexual tendencies. Now, <clears throat> that is as that is not transgenderism as I understand it. Uh, so, but he said they also seem to develop traits of the opposite sex, but he doesn't go into it. So, so I don't really know. Okay, but okay. um, but that could that you know that's some research that sort of might explain what transgenderism is all about, because it seems to be a thing, mm-hmm. not a not not nearly as pervasive a thing as the news would have you believe it's very, very small percentage of the population. Um, but, but that, that was, that was, um, that was the point that Ramachandran made. Got it. And then here we go to the hard question of consciousness. Oh, yeah. that, I, I know we, we, we talked um, on email, but um I've been interested in consciousness, trying to even take a stab of exploring it. We'll have this National Geographic and uh, the scientists say that some scholars reckon the puzzle of consciousness is something the human mind is incapable of solving. Um, It's an apples apples and oranges thing. mm -hmm. You say, how can this lump of flesh between our ears, it's just stuff. How can it give rise to the way you feel when you smell a flower, uh, curiosity, sorrow, uh, anything. How can conscious experience emanate from this jellied mass in our skulls? And, And you see, you can't explain. You could say, you know, how could a mouse give birth to a kangaroo? It can't. So how can this physical thing create that non-physical thing that's essentially the hard question of consciousness and nobody has remotely answered it the only reason we think it does is from lesion experiments in other words if you destroyed my if you destroyed my uh, optical optic the optical parts of my brain i'd be blind same with the auditory you destroyed my prefrontal cortex i'd be stupid it's the way it works, and it's and it, every single time it works that way. So we're pretty sure about that. But this asks the opposite question, which is, how can a conscious experience change the physical brain? That's even that's even sort of more freaky. And but it's been shown to be true. It's been shown to be true, and these are experiments. You'd like to read Gazanica, Michael Gazana's book, Who's in Charge, if you're interested in the consciousness question. It's a lot of fun. Okay. He writes, and he writes really well. You know, it's 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 kind of an, believe it or not, it's kind of an easy read and very informative. Yeah, I think you do enjoy and, it. And so does that even tie into how does meditation change the brain and our health? I don't or- know. I, I don't know about meditation because I don't know anything about it. I've never, okay. I tried it a few times and got terribly bored and gave up. <laughs> okay. but, but it's not, uh, clearly it's not for me. But, sure. but for example, suppose you got a letter, said you won the lottery, you're getting a $10 million. Nice. Well, yeah. You'd get, you'd get pretty excited. Yeah. It's not the words written on the page. It's not the, the, just uh, looking at the squiggles on a page that excited you. You read this thing. You obtained an idea. Um, I'm a windfall is coming my way, and that idea got you all excited. Now, what directs your your heartbeats and everything? Now, what directs all that? Your brain. So this idea impacted on your brain. But this is one of the things that we know. Whenever you learn anything, anything at all. It's a new neural pathway in your brain. For example, think about those conditioning experiments that I was talking about, you know, about half an hour ago. You know, where you shock to the foot and and the um and the auditory tone. Why do you become afraid of the tone? Because a new neural pathway is created, but it's created to the central nuke from the lateral, from the lateral um amygdala, which is where all the sensory information comes through initially, 
to the central nu nucleus of the amygdala, and the central nucleus of the amygdala starts, inaugurates the fear response. And that neuro, neural pathway is created for the first time. And furthermore, unless you uh, decondition the mouse, that mouse will remain afraid of that tone for the rest of its life. And so in your book, it looks like you've got a strong case for brainstem theory. And then at the very end, in chapter 10, you show how neuroscience helped you to treat those two boys with the seeking system. Mm -hmm. So how did you help each boy differently, knowing when to act like a coach or a traditional therapist with those seven emotional systems? Well, as I say, it was mainly the seeking system that I was trying to um, utilize to help him get better. But the one kid, the one, the teenager who was depressed, um, he, he was a kind of useless kid, really, in terms of his, his use to society. He didn't study, smoked quite a bit of pot. He wasn't addicted to it heavily, but he, you know, he smoked it when he, when he just wanted to feel a little bit better. He was a member of a band. He never practiced. He was supposed to meet his friends. He wouldn't show up. He had a girlfriend. He never took her anywhere. And, and yet at the same time, so everyone was disappointed in him. His teachers didn't think much of him, and he was deeply offended because he had this idea he was very, very sensitive and so on. Anyway, I interpreted along the usual lines, you know, trying to help him understand why he was so sort of angry and resentful. And he agreed with me. Only thing is, it didn't do any good. He didn't get it. He didn't get better at all. If anything, he might have gotten a little worse. Hmm. And but anyway, progress was not being made. And then he had a had a bad experience. He overheard or heard about some friends of his who were slagging him off and about something I, which I described, but it doesn't matter what it was. Hmm. And, you know, they're all saying he was a real pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. And and he had behaved in a way. And I, I said to him, I said, you know, you're not stupid. You, you, you understand other people. I said, why didn't you see it coming? It was bound to happen from the way you were behaving. And and then it sort of it sort of hit him. And and it was very important to do that. Just, you know, it's like when you say to somebody, run differently. And I said to him, don't you see what you've done? Don't you see what's happened? Now, I, I, I couldn't have said this to him if he didn't know me well, because I always liked him. And I think he knew that. And we always got on really well. And even when he was, even when he was, you know, not making any progress and kind of just using me to validate himself, uh, we, we had a good relationship. And so when I said this to him, he took it, and he took it from somebody he trusted, and 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 that was actually the beginning of uh, of his uh, improvement. Now the other child, the, the little boy, he was only eight or nine, and actually both these cases are an amalgam. By the way, I I I didn't present just a case history, but this was a boy who'd had a medical intervention when he was about four years old, three or four. And I don't know, he could remember a tiny bit about it, but not much. And But it had obviously sensitized his fear system because I knew about that. That absolutely guided the way I treated him. Now, the funny thing is, I remember the first time this happened, you know, you get phobic patients on a regular basis in, in psychotherapy. But I remember the very first time it happened, it was you know, usually what you interpret, you know, what we were taught to interpret is that children have edible fantasies. They want to marry their mother. They, they're afraid of retaliation for that. I, I would have, you know, ordinarily maybe said something about that. I didn't say anything about it. They're not a word. I said, uh, I said, if you're scared, something must have scared you. And it seems to me from what mommy told me that it was this. And then the question is, now, how can we get over it? 
And the way you get over it is just you start trying things that scare you in a way that's in a safer environment and so on. That's how we did it. But I remember afterwards, I remember sitting in my office and thinking, well, why did I do that so differently? And what, I mean, I, I felt my decisions were right, but I thought, well, what made me decide those things? And I couldn't figure it out. I mean, since then, it must have been reading Yak and knowing about the fear system, knowing about sensitization, all those things. That That isn't Yak's main thing, but I had read about it in any case. And that's that's what guided me. And that that little boy was basically cured in three sessions. His parents did, did most of the work in terms of acclimatizing him to things that frightened him, but that was really all it took. So how do you think an understanding of the brain helped him with that? If we, uh, a brain, emotions, how, how did these two well, young boys get helped faster? Well, the first boy, when he, when I confronted him with what he did, you know, the teenager with what he'd done, you know, they'd been such a pain you know, been, you know, so sort of annoying and a sort of hostile, covertly hostile. He, he, when he saw that, he thought, you know, I don't want to be like that. Oh, I am like that. He, he saw it for the first time. Oh, I am like that. And I said, yeah, you are. That's why people get pissed off with you. Mm, he got and, to understand himself. And, and then, you know, you know how it, that's so important, you know, the way other people see you or, or how you think if anybody's ever going to like you. It's, it's so, so terribly important. And so he wanted to change. And the funny thing is, he'd always complained that the girlfriend I was talking about, she broke up with him quite quickly because, you know, he was a lousy boyfriend. Uh, but he was always saying, girls aren't interested in me. It's because he had a miserable expression and he, his posture was terrible. And the funny thing is, two months after this happened, he a girl fell in love with him. Uh, and he fell in love with her. Because he got his own self-esteem. Yeah. I noticed it. I noticed it. His mm-hmm. facial expression changed. He stood up straight. And he was worthy of being loved, of being fallen in love. And, and I remember he was so amazed. You know, I mean, well, first time you fall in love and somebody falls in love with you, it is quite amazing. That, that anybody could feel that way right. or, or somebody else about you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it was a, and it was a lovely relationship. Oh, Lucy, you've done some phenomenal work just to kind of close things up here. How would you like to sum up your book and the work that you've done and spearheading this field? I still see you as a rock star in this field, but uh, how would you like to close this for, for people listening? What should we take well, away? Uh, the re- you know, I said, I said at the beginning, I said that uh, neuroscience isn't difficult. And what I mean by that is that it's not difficult to understand a particular piece of research. It might seem difficult, but if you just take your time, you can understand it. It's quite mechanistic. You can figure it out. Um, you, you sometimes have to look up terms and stuff like that. But if you're prepared to do that, you can. Because in and of itself, it's not so difficult. The problem is there is so much information and so many conclusions that people come to, and they're different. And they're all very persuasive. And that was what I wrote the book about because I just couldn't, I couldn't make a case for anything or a case against anything. You know, you read somebody like Ledoux, I mean, he's so brilliant. And even though I, I, I don't think he has the idea about consciousness right, his, his research is so fantastic. He, he, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any right. difference. Right. And, and so, but that's what the book is about. It's, it's trying to help you to take away and see the big picture, which was what I was after, what I wanted to do without, without any, you know, without pulling any punches. 
Well, Lucy, uh, this has been phenomenal. I want to thank you so much. A, First of all, I had a great time. <laughs> oh, I, me as well. This is just like chatting with a, an, an old friend who yeah, whose absolutely. book I devoured, like word for word. But the first I, time I, ever, this is the first time we've ever met. No, exactly, exactly. But I feel like I know you because, uh, yeah, you know, famous in my eyes. But, um, you know, just thank you for sending me that note. Um, oh. it, it was before the holiday and I knew immediately who you were. I came across my computer and, and uh, of course, I screamed a little bit over here because it's like that. You know, in my eyes, um, you, you are a rock star. Like Daniel Siegel, who wrote the foreword to the Archaeology of Mind, suggested yeah. that scientists and researchers... Um, that was a great interview you did with it, him, by the way. Oh, thank you. I, I was nervous back then. Was, oh, that was my great. First, my first year, I was dying, but uh, oh. that, that was fun. So he talked about how readers uh, that, that go through this, if you're interested in all those academic references, clinicians, educators... Um, can, can get those all the research but for the rest of us that don't need the research just read the book like it's a non-fictional story to help digest archaeology of mind and, and into yours um, I think I think that helps us all to just understand that eventually the terms will sink in so um, mm -hmm. I want to thank you so much for the the change the research the change in the world you've made and for everything you've shared today thank you so much for people that want to reach you, is the best way? Do you have a website or? I don't have a website. I, I okay. you can just reach me by my email, Lucy Bivin sure. at gmail.com, You know, all lowercase. Perfect, and I'll put all the links to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And okay, thank you so thanks. much. Thank okay. you. Pleasure. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.